Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 41, A Simple Plan, where we will be looking at chapters 80 through 81 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of best laid plans. As per usual, here is your standard explanation of the podcast. Each week, we will be examining the section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phrenemos of the week. Good luck, Will. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Well, that was very quick. And as always, we're going to start with a few disclaimers here. First of all, we're in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Granted, we're not opposed to such an arrangement should it become available. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've read the main books, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as all the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you don't mind knowing the future and you read your horoscope every day like some sort of deranged fortune teller. Either way... Beyond this point, here be spoilers. Why would a fortune teller need to read their horoscope? They read it from the stars. Whatever. Finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible. So, that brings us to our 45-second recap. It is your turn this week, Phoenix, so let me get a timer going. So, the opposite is true about this section from last week's section. And that means that while last week, lots of reading and almost nothing happened, this one is much, much shorter and a lot of things happened. Yes. You ready? As ready as I'll ever be. I believe in you. In three, two, one, Go. The Dracus arrives at Quoth and Dena's campfire while the pair cuddles on top of a greystone, and Quoth is annoyed by the Dracus's timing for the first time in this section. The Dracus eats its sweet treat, snuffs out the fire, and to Quoth's dismay doesn't react to the Ophalum in the same way that humans do, and it takes way too long in the whole keeling over process for Quoth's liking. Then the town of Traven starts up their harvest festival celebrations by lighting bonfires, practically inviting the Dracus to come play with them. Again, to Quoth's dismay, the Dracus accepts the invitation, so Quoth gives it a head start and then races it down the hill and somehow is surprised that the Dracus is there first. Anyway, Quoth makes a show of putting out the fires that the Dracus started by using magic that no one saw, and then he uses more magic to smash the poor creature to death with a great iron wheel, and then the roof of the church collapses, taking Quoth with it. Well, you want the good news or the bad news? What's the good news? You made it through. What's the bad news? Well, I hope you like raspberries, because your time was 51.35 seconds. No! No, 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 no. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. Why? Well, you, you broke the 45 second limit. But there was a lot to go over. 
You could have been more economical in your sentences. But there was a lot to go over. That's not my problem. But... Damn it. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. Anyway, so let's get into it, shall we? Before we get into it, actually, does anyone want to suggest what kind of punishment food? I know it's going to have raspberry or raspberry flavor. But does someone have a suggestion for one that won't make me gag? Or, even better, one that will. Fork you. <laughs> Fine, let's get into the chapters. So, the thing that kept running through my head as we were reading through this was a series of lines from Leonard Snart, a.k.a. Captain Cold from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. As a master thief, his mantra is that there are four rules that you always have to follow. Make the plan, execute the plan, watch the plan go off the rails, throw away the plan. That happens. Well, and it really brings to mind just how limited we are when it comes to understanding all of the variables that come into play in the world. And here we see Quoth coming up against the limits of how much even his mind can hold in it. We start off, he and Denna are still enjoying their cuddle, and he's like, oh, this is nice, I can't sleep, this is nice. <laughs> I don't know that he and Denna are enjoying their cuddle. Denna is unaware of the cuddle. In a way that is still innocent, though. It's not creepy, this isn't predatory, this isn't gross, this is both genuinely, for maybe the first time in his non-childhood life, showing affection to someone in a way that is actually warranted, protective, and very kind. He's giving her a place to rest and giving up himself a bit and his comfort for it. I think it's really cute. I think it's really sweet. I know that sometimes if I cuddle on you or you cuddle on me, the person being cuddled upon is not the most comfortable. And it has nothing to do with bodily functions because of reactions to hormones or whatever. It's literally, your head is on my arm <laughs> and my arm is now asleep. Yep, or your body is warm and now I'm overheating. Oh my goodness, does this happen to me all the time. Oh my gosh, I love, I love it when you just cuddle up against me in my brain. I love it. And then I just, I can't go back to sleep. It's like someone put an electric blanket on my back in the middle of summer. Yeah, I do tend to run a little hot in that regard. It's so super sweet, and I wish that I could keep you there all the time, but... I get it. I don't take it personally. That's good. And I also know that cuddling with you, sometimes my arm falls asleep, so... <laughs> I get it. So yeah, Kvothe is awake and enjoying, knowing that he's in this truly safe place. Uh, so to speak. It's not remotely safe. 
He feels emotionally safe, though, for first time in a while. Okay, that I will give you. Emotionally safe, sure. Physically safe... Pretty much the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's waiting for a five-ton lizard that can breathe fire and knock over hundred-year-old oaks to come and eat a bucket full of heroin? Point taken. Hun, I love you. This is not a safe place. We get to the first variable that Kvothe has miscalculated. So the Dracus takes the bucket full of ophalum, kind of has a good time, rolls over in the coals, and it doesn't seem to be working. The Dracus is most definitely not dead. 15 minutes later is not showing the same symptoms that a human would, besides, you know, being dead from that much ophalum. But it's not getting delirious. It's not getting the manic problems. It's not going through any expected behavior. It's almost like it has a different brain chemistry from a human. It's almost like we shouldn't be using animals as a direct comparison to humans. Mice are not humans. Rats are not humans. Dracuses are not humans. So yeah, that's miscalculation number one. Then Kvoth notices that the sky is starting to get a little brighter. And at first he thinks maybe the moon's coming out behind the clouds. No. Before we go down that road a little too far, I just want to point out Denna is past the fork out and the moon is hidden behind clouds. Again. But the light is actually from all of the bonfires down in Traben, reflecting off of the clouds, making it easier to see how absolutely screwed our heroes are. Normally, I would find these sorts of things absolutely enchanting. I love a good harvest festival. I enjoy going and picking pumpkins and drinking hot cider and standing around bonfires and enjoying that crisp autumn air. It's the best. Oh my god, I want to do that and I can't do that this year at all. No. <sighs> Stupid pandemic. Right. It would be so enchanting and so pretty and... I miss Oktoberfest. I miss just social gatherings. Yep, me too. <laughs> I've been watching the Tottenham Hotspur documentary All or Nothing, and the strangest thing to me has just been seeing, first of all, full stadiums, which just seems so surreal now. Just the idea of seeing athletes in a stadium filled with people just isn't something I can comprehend. It just breaks my brain a little bit. And then seeing the scenes in practice where they're giving each other high fives and hugs and they're tackling each other, they're playing close, and then sitting in briefing rooms all close together, and locker rooms and everything, and I'm just sitting here thinking, that's not something we do anymore. <laughs> it's not something that makes sense anymore. It's not something that's remotely safe anymore. Yeah, it's... 
deeply surreal. And then after the portion of the documentary where they get to the coronavirus, you can see sort of the new way of being taking hold as the stadiums go empty and the training sessions are much more spread apart. And then that briefing room where they had been all huddled together watching things, now they're seated six feet apart, standing way apart from each other. It's a really surreal experience watching that happen all over again. Yeah, it is interesting going back to media that has been taking place in real time. Go back six months on a YouTube channel or maybe a year now on a YouTube channel and see what they're doing. If they're doing vlogs, see what activities they're doing and now see what activities they're doing. Yeah, and look at going from unmasked faces to masked faces. Yeah, it's uh, to get completely off the rails. So during the pandemic, one of the things that I am taking advantage of is our, quote, boatloads of extra time, except I don't really have that because my full-time job is mostly this podcast. But I am taking advantage of less out time and trying to learn American Sign Language via YouTube, which is leading me down a bunch of rabbit holes where I'm watching YouTube channels where there's a couple where one member is deaf and the other member is hearing. And just seeing what they were doing six months ago or more than six months ago versus what they are doing now, which is having to navigate a world where one of the people cannot communicate because he can't lip read right now. Like masks, even ones that are supposed to be designed so that you can see through them, like have a plastic shield in front, are really difficult because that plastic shield just fogs up. And having to navigate all of the differences that just got thrust upon all of us. A lot of places have had to adapt their processes on the fly. Oftentimes, just throwing something together that made sense at the time, regardless of whether it was accessible or scalable. And it's tough. And here is our very awkward segue back to the book. Appreciate you joining us on that tangent. So, shortly after Kvothe notices the fires... The Dracus notices the fires. And Kvothe has made it into a ball of drugs, a five-ton ball of ophalum-addled Dracus. Fire-breathing, no less. Fire-breathing drug Dracus. This is where we see that second miscalculation because he forgot the other variables. Namely, there's going to be fires going at night and his chosen location is a perfect vantage point for them. I'd say maybe this miscalculation is knowing what the date is. And also line of sight. But if they'd set this up back over the ridge where they'd found it going after the resin runners camp, they could probably have avoided this particular problem. Forethought. Not Kvothe's strong suit. Congratulations. There is one conscious human in these two chapters. And... I do not have to do the Frenemos this week. <laughs> Laugh it up. You're having raspberries, so I consider us even. <sighs> I was hoping you'd forget. 
Oh no. Oh no. So anyway, the fires catch the Dracus's eye, and it takes off like a flash. Which is fun for a five-ton animal to just beeline <laughs> down a hill. It also has the advantage of being big enough that it can kind of just bulldoze through anything that gets in its way. So straight lines are really easy for it. Hit a tree, knock it over, go. Exactly. Meanwhile, Kvothe gives it a head start by dumping all of his stuff, leaving some of it for Denna, including the water skin, which shows that he's just a really nice guy. Dumb in this situation, but nice. And then he takes the rest of Denna's pony money in the form of a big ball of ophalum resin and hightails it down the hill, falling and careening. And all I have in my head is the scene from The Princess Bride. <laughs> As you wish. Ooh, oh, ooh, ah, ow, 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 ooh, ow, ooh, ow, ooh, ow, ooh, ow. Yes, <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, so I was actually reminded of, in a past life, I was a camp counselor out in Ellensburg, Washington. And one of the famous activities is we would climb up to the top of this ridge at night where there'd be a campfire up there and you'd toast marshmallows and sing songs and, you know, generally have a good time. And you could watch the stars. It was super cool. But there was always the hike back and going downhill in the dark was super tricky. Even with a flashlight and everything, you were liable to catch a route wrong or, you know, I mean, it's a dirt path. There's always going to be some rough terrain. There was always the trick trying to figure out, do you go with a flashlight or do you let your eyes adapt to the starlight and go that way? Or do you sit on a sleeping bag and scoot your way down? Or do you let somebody with the truck take you down? Because that was also an option. Oh, well, that's my option. <laughs> I always remember that every week there was always at least one kid who would twist their ankle coming down. Like, you know, there'd always be some kid who would step on the path wrong, you know, a bit of stray gravel would send them sliding, what have you. And then they would be either carried down or braced down with the rest of their campers or their counselors, depending on what was easiest. Or the truck. Or the truck, if the truck could get to them. Okay. Because the truck took a different path. Gotcha. So if they were on the path, not an option. What's worse than going down a treacherous path in the dark? Going down a treacherous path in the dark with a twisted ankle. Yes. This reminded me of just how tricky that can be. And both has his little thieves sympathy lamp to help him out. So that's a flashlight, but that doesn't give you everything. That actually gives you a case of tunnel vision because all you're looking at is just that little point of light where the flashlight actually lands as opposed to everything around it. Meanwhile, all that does is it just makes the rest of your night vision completely shot. He specifically states that he went tumbling down the hill ash over tea kettle. Not exactly the most heroic of descents. No. So then he manages to get to the bottom of the hill and then run all the way back to Traben, which kind of feels like he traveled by map there. A little bit. Maybe they were closer to Traben than he wanted to admit in the first place. And he also does make a point of how they kind of just meandered their way there in the first place. 
So he gets back to Trebin only to find that the Dracus has, to no one's surprise, beat him there and is having a grand time. Lighting everything on fire, scaring the crap out of all of the townsfolk. Destroying property, the things that it isn't burning, it's crushing. Right. <laughs> and sometimes doing both. Right. Yeah. Making very, very loud roaring noises. You got to figure this is a nightmare scenario. You're holding this festival to ward off evil spirits and destruction, and then here comes this great black fire-breathing monster just wrecking the place. Not only that, drug-addled. I mean, they're sitting here trying to ward against demons, and for all they know, this is what a demon looks like. What would you think if... A dinosaur or a kaiju just through your house. Right, <laughs> right? It's terrifying. And to make it better, it breathes fire. Blue fire, no less. Which is a sign of the Chandrian. Right. I mean, this whole thing is absolute nightmare fuel. So, Quoth comes in to find a pretty shocking scene shocking if you're not expecting this thing to go on a rampage sure but it's pretty bad i don't think Quoth even calculated just how bad it would be probably not he gave it like a 10 minute head start yeah then he's like well i know what i gotta do first i gotta put out the fires and then i gotta kill a dracus so how does he do step one with magic and hey good quick thinking there Here's where he throws out the plan, because the plan has gone way off the rails. <laughs> Absolutely. I do remember at one point, though, back when, I think it was the fire in the fishery, you mentioned that we don't know what a heat eater is. We understand what it means. It's like a magnet. We understand the point of it and what it is. We do not understand the how, but now we understand a kind of half-fashed way that it could work. And to be fair to Quoth, good on him for doing it so quickly and uh, thinking on his feet here. And for taking this step first. Yes, exactly. Like, this is the triage step to say, okay, now we're going to start by mitigating the worst of the damage. I think, to me, the addition of this little bit of sigildry is like, well... I have to use the magic system somewhere. Yeah, and you kind of have to get the sense that all of the stuff he's learned in the fishery means something. <laughs> but good on him for actually thinking quick and using all the stuff he's learned. That's not easy to do. And especially the trick of getting over this seemingly foolproof plan, <laughs> which he didn't realize just how big a fool he was dealing with here, namely himself. And the Dracus. <laughs> he has to think fast, and to his credit, he comes up with something that works pretty well to do that initial mitigation. And that buys him time for the second part, which is how to actually stop the Dracus proper. He even says, but my job was only half done. And now we finally get to Chekhov's Lodenstone. I mean, there is no way that they're going to introduce this and that scale that is magnetically attracted to it and then just kind of leave it there, right? I think that's what makes this book series so enchanting to theory crafters. Speaking of, 
I'm going to try to go back at the end of this to something that I want to point out that might or might not have something to do with all of the theories. But let's continue for now. So he then takes another little portion of burning shingle, creates a great big fire where he wants it, namely on an old oak tree, lures the Dracus there with the remaining pony money. Convoluted plan. Takes about a page to get through. I mean, I guess we need to have the detail of what he did to make everything better, but I just personally don't find it that interesting. No, we don't need to go through the mousetrap. So he lures the Dracus to the tree, gives it the remaining pony money, binds the Dracus to his Dracus scale, and then uses the Loden Stone to attract all the iron to the Dracus, which also happens to include that great big huge iron wheel out front of the church. Right, because there's no way that that was going to be mentioned without there being a payoff either. Right. We've had a number of meaningfully foreshadowed items here, and whammo! The wheel comes and crushes the Dracus, as if summoned by God. Except it wasn't God, it was Kvothe. He feels really good about this. Yeah, for about five seconds. Yeah, and then the building that he's standing on crumbles. Welcome to chapter 81. He's standing on top of a building, and now he is not. It kind of feels like he was a little too late here. He feels like, yeah, I saved the day. And then you kind of look around and everything else is wrecked. And you kind of have to think, did you really? Because... All of this, at the end of the day, was set into motion by Kvothe's foolhardiness and his hubris. He thought that, one, he could just poison the Dracus. No muss, no fuss, no collateral damage. Two, he thought that maybe putting it on this great big hilltop that is in view of everything, including the Harvest Festival, which he had originally thought of as a risk, would be the way to do it. But because he did that, he actually put the Dracus on the path to the Harvest Festival. The Dracus otherwise would have just been hanging out in the forest over on the other side of the ridge. Quoth is the one who brought the thing he feared most to pass. I also want to point out something. You mentioned hubris, which reminds me of episode 12, which if you go all the way back to when we did that, which is a long time ago, I think episode 12 or somewhere around there is also where we get the story of Telu and Incanus and the Great Iron Wheel. In that story, Incanus is, of course, this creature of hubris and pride and thinks that he can control everything until Telu catches up to him and smashes him on his wheel. A burning wheel, no less. Makes you wonder if Kvothe is... Telu, or Incanus. You know, I think there's a little of both. It also reminds me of the story that Scarpy tells of Lanray and Celatos, where Lanray's conviction that he is the hero of the story is what turns him into the villain. And Celatos's conviction that he knows everything and can see everything is what blinds him to what's actually happening and what's happened to his former friend. In this case, I think Kvothe's hubris here mirrors that of Selatos. He thinks that he can see and know and thereby control everything around him. And while he can control some of it, 
and he can see some of it. It's the stuff that he can't see that really throws a wrench in the works. All of this was completely preventable. It was avoidable. And his own actions are what precipitated the destruction. And he was too late to meaningfully save the village. You look at just, even after the fires get put out, the Dracus is still just running around crushing all these buildings and crumbling them to dust. Because even without the fire, it's still a five-ton metal lizard. Magnetic metal lizard. Yeah, yeah. This is not a small creature. This is not inconsiderable. It's basically a wrecking ball. Just running around, breaking everything. Quoth doesn't really stick around very long, but you gotta figure that for a lot of the folks that live in the town, like the shopkeepers, the innkeepers, you know, the various villagers, their livelihoods are pretty well wrecked. It's not like there's insurance for Dracus. <laughs> Do you really think that the town of Traven has insurance at all? I don't think that the system of insurance exists in the Four Corners. They're boned. Yeah, specifically by a Dracus. What, proper boned? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, given that it is the mating habits, yeah, actually. I mean, it wants to fork a fire. So yeah, I mean, this is pretty calamitous. And I don't know that Quoth at this point really reckons just how stupid he has been and just how damned lucky he was that it wasn't worse. I mean, we don't know what the loss of life is at this point, but the loss of property is staggering. To the point also, if you go back to when Quoth is starting his story and talking to Chronicler, he says, My first mentor called me Elir because I was clever and I knew it. My first real lover called me Dulator because she liked the sound of it. I have been called Shatakar, Lightfinger, and Six String. We have found Six String in this book already. I have been called Quoth the Bloodless, which we've seen, Quoth the Arcane, which we have not seen in this so far, and Quoth Kingkiller, also not yet seen. I have of course been called many other things, most of them uncouth, although very few were unearned. Yep. I have stolen princesses back from sleeping Barrow Kings, which is something that I want to hear about. I burned down the town of Traven. I have spent the night with Felurian and left with both my sanity and my life. I was expelled from the university at a younger age than most people are allowed in. I tread paths by moonlight that others fear to speak of during the day. I have talked to gods, loved women, and written songs that make minstrels weep. You may have heard of me. But burning down the town of Traven is specifically one of the stories that is told about Quoth. It's one of the legends. Not rescued Traben from a drug-addled Dracus. I burned the town down. That's probably the best way to describe it. it seems like at least Elder Quoth realizes that he didn't do any saving here. Well, I mean, he only saved what he already wrecked. This is like that person who creates a problem and then mitigates it and says, I'm your savior. <laughs> Good thing I was around. 
Yeah, great thing you were around. The, <laughs> the one thing that I wanted to get back to real quick, it happens about in the middle of our chapter and it's really easy to ignore, but may have something more to do with Denna and her past or her current situation. Both before he runs after the Dracus, tries to wake Denna up, and instead scoops her up, blankets and all, and gets her back onto the ground, which I'm not sure that that's safer. I mean, yeah, she won't roll off of a greystone this way, but five-ton lizard rampaging everywhere, just he has no forethoughts. Both is definitely making some assumptions about the success of his venture here. Yes. <laughs> but he tries to wake her up. She kind of rouses herself a little bit and says, Motef? Does that mean morning? Does that mean her tongue is too big for her mouth or something like that? But she's not dreaming because her eyes aren't moving. She's exhausted. She seems to be over the worst of her drug-addled state. So who or what is Moteth? You know, I wondered a similar thing. I'm going to probably have to do some uh, wiki-diving to find on that one. If anyone has any idea, please share it with us. That one's one of those mysteries that I don't think gets paid off. Yeah, I don't recall hearing that word before or since. Or reading it. Yeah. But I'm just kind of curious. Good catch. Thank you. Well, at this point, there is no more stalling for you. I need to know something. Yes? Have we finally reached a point on this podcast where you are forced to choose Kvothe as your Fernimos? There will be a day when Kvoth is the only Fronimos available to us, but it is not this day. Is it the Dracus? Yes, that was the least bad option here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like we've said, every problem that Kvoth faces in this chapter is one that he's created himself. One, he assumes that the Dracus needs to be killed and needs to be killed by him. He assumes that he can do it by himself. He assumes that he can do it completely painlessly, that he knows all the things he needs to know to do it. He assumes that he is the smartest person in the room. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if I'm looking back on it, it seems to me that if Quoth were thinking smarter about the problem, instead of trying to go it alone with just him and Denna against this Dracus, he could have gone back to Traben and warned them and then used that warning to help build a plan and set up a group of people to set a trap and act meaningfully for the Dracus, luring it away from town. But he didn't. He created the problem and he only kind of solved it, but not really. Meanwhile, from the Dracus's perspective, what did it do? You know, it saw something that made it amorous, saw it looked like an invitation to mate, so it took the first invitation, and then it also got some things that made it feel really good. And then it turned around and saw an even bigger invitation. It was already feeling pretty good, so it went for it. It took the invitations that it saw. And next thing you know, 
it's getting attacked by this little piss ant with a magnet. <laughs> Quoth, the little piss ant. <laughs> I mean, that's an apt description, is it not? From a certain point of view. And Quoth is not wrong to feel some pity for this creature. It's an animal. It's literally following its instincts. It is doing what everything that pretty much every instinct is telling it is the right thing to do. And you can't really fault it for any of this. Hey, it saw a tree. It ate the tree. Hey, the tree made it feel really good. And it developed a chemical dependency. But its thing is it just eats trees. Granted, for all we know, Ophalum trees are part of its natural ecosystem, and it's actually used to it, and has a very high tolerance for it. We don't know that it's meaningfully addicted or altered from its normal state. Quoth makes some assumptions there, based on a book he read. I don't know, though. Did Chronicler's book even have anything to do with how it reacts to heroin? We don't know. Quoth just made a lot of assumptions, and... We've seen all the other ones turn out wrong. There's a good chance this one was wrong, too. You know what would be fun? If there were a real-life-in-our-world book of the mating habits of the common Dracus. Hey, Pat, if you're stalled on the doors of stone and you're looking for something to procrastinate with, the mating habits of the common Dracus is right there. We'd love to read it. I don't know that I want more Dracus sex in my life, but I don't know that I don't want it. The nature doc kid and me would love it. Yeah, me too. With that, having discussed some interesting facts about, <laughs> about our fictional world, let's learn some interesting facts about the real world. What do you have for us this week? Alrighty. You may know some of this and you may not. So right now, I'm wondering, do you find that with all of the gestures broadly at everything going on around us that you're having more troubles with your memory than normal yeah i mean i know i am oh yeah so we're not actually alone in this this time with all of the stress from our current world events has led a lot of people to a more stressful anxiety-ridden depressive state and there's reports of a lack of sleep amongst a sizable portion of the population. Of course, this is no big revelation, but something that helps me get through these types of situations is to understand the whys behind them, what's causing them. So the question is, why does increased stress lead to forgetfulness? The answer can be found in our hormones and the molecules that produce them, specifically neurotransmitters. Anxiety and stress activate, uh, I'm going to butcher this, corticotropins, which release hormones like cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And while this can be useful in cases of emergency, it can also be detrimental to your neurotransmitters if the stress continues for a sustained period of time. So when this happens, the chemical pathways that form memories cannot be established properly. Not only that, but it may also be harder to retrieve memories due to the fact that anxiety itself is known to disrupt cognitive ability in general. So if you're thinking that maybe what you're feeling isn't actually anxiety, because 
you know, that's my mental disorder of choice, but rather that you're feeling more depressed and you're still feeling like your memory is made of Swiss cheese. Depression also disrupts memory formation, but in a different way. Instead of altering the exchange of neurotransmitters, it literally reduces the amount of them, especially with mood regulators like dopamine and serotonin, which leads to a similar outcome. So two different routes still lead to the same end. These troubles with memory also affect task management and plans to do things in the future. We forget to place that order for coffee or cat food or finish the laundry that we started. So while it may be frustrating, it's normal and you should give yourself some grace. And you shouldn't berate yourself for these memory lapses. In terms of what can help mitigate this frustration and maybe help set you back on a path where you're at least experiencing some equilibrium, experts recommend meditation, rest, talking with a trusted friend or therapist, and maybe even medication if that's something that would help you. Similar effects happen when we don't sleep enough, where our neurotransmitters are depressed and not working properly. So making sure that you're getting enough sleep can help if you're keeping your routines, going to sleep at the same time, waking up at the same time, what have you. This also helps to contextualize our not so great memories in the normal times, because let's face it, neither one of us really have the best memory when it comes to not being in pandemic, quarantine, end of days life. Because my anxiety disorder keeps me at that heightened level of anxiety anyway, and so my memory for certain events is kind of gone anyway. And for you, your ADHD leads to those depressive symptoms, which you have had a sustained period of lower dopamine and serotonin pretty much forever. And so when we have those tasks that need to be done, those chores that need to be done, and we don't have a set routine set up, it's really hard to remember that you need to do those things. Not that you're actively trying not to do those things. It's just, it's not in your brain to do them. And so when people who are neurotypical look at how you function, they're trying to look at you through a lens of neurotypical behaviors instead of giving you the grace and the accommodations for what is actually happening in your head. But I think now with how the world so suddenly flipped, so many more people are going through what we have already been going through. I think a lot of people out there are having a much harder time adjusting to those chemical changes than maybe we are. It was hard even before we were having mid-apocalyptic days. The pre-apocalyptic times, it was tough to begin with for us. And this is, it feels like a difference of degree as opposed to kind. And granted, the degree is definitely increased. And I definitely do notice that. But I also do notice that more of my friends are feeling similarly people who are neurotypical types who hadn't traditionally experienced this sort of thing. And yeah, I can empathize. And I think it might be even more distressing for our more neurotypical friends to be going through this suddenly, because I feel like 
yeah, it's gotten worse, but I'm not so distressed that it's happening in the first place. Yeah, it just kind of feels like more of the same, and the dial's been turned up, but that dial has always been there as opposed to discovering a brand new dial. Yeah, that actually is very interesting, and it's very helpful. That is actually helping me to have a little bit more grace to myself, and I really appreciate that. The thing you have to know about this is it's not like you can just not have this happen. Our bodies are designed to release stress hormones when we are in a period of stress. And for people who haven't been under a kind of blanket stress for a sustained period of time, that's got to just be really weird and really distressing. Yeah, it's definitely new for a lot of folks. So want to take this as a reminder that it's okay to not be okay. Give yourself grace. If you're having a hard time forming or sticking to a routine, there are chemical processes at work in your body, in your brain, that are leading to some of these behaviors that maybe you wouldn't have experienced before. This isn't about being lazy or having a poor work ethic or anything like that. This is just your body working against you. And that whole lazy or poor work ethic thing, realize that people who are not neurotypical, who have been going through ADHD, depression, anxiety, any other number of psychological disorders, it's not a lack of trying to be, quote, normal. It's not how we're wired. In conclusion, let's be kind to one another. You know, if you need someone to talk to, there are plenty of resources available for you. So let's move on to our seven words. It was my turn to pick the seven words from the book. And I had only a few options here. So we have, behind me, I heard the Dracus grunt. Which... I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit um, uncomfortable with those being our seven words. Yeah, not the greatest. Then we've got, Denna, Denna, you have to get up. Which kind of has that little kid trying to wake up their visiting aunt or uncle. Tractor, tractor. Like your brother would do to, what, your aunt? And me. And you? And just, like, crawl all over you to wake you up? On Christmas morning, yep. So there's that one, not great also. Then we've got, her pupils were fine, she was fine. Again, not great. And then we've got, the Dracus is going down to Traben, which is kind of boring. So I ended up choosing, I began gently untangling myself from Denna, which actually works both literally, and it also is something that we see him sort of doing emotionally. Throughout this period in the books, He's been tangling himself up with her. And he's been telling himself a story of a grand romance. And he's been building this idea in his head of who she is and who he is and who they are together as a couple. And with this section here, he is actually decoupling. He is moving on to be more independent. And he's doing things where he's not thinking solely of Denna. For good or ill. So that was my choice. I think that that's probably your best choice of seven words. And I also think it's kind of sweet and cute. Because he is physically untangling himself from this girl that he wants to be holding. Yeah. 
Parting is such sweet sorrow. Moving on, so what do you have? Kind of in keeping with my interesting fact. So I follow a number of accounts on Instagram, including The Trevor Project. And for those that don't know, The Trevor Project is an organization that seeks to help primarily youth, but pretty much anyone who is struggling that is within the LGBTQIA plus community. And they put out an Instagram post a while back that caught my eye. It said, mental illness is not a personal failure. That hits home. Yeah. You know, growing up with ADHD and depression as a kid, it was really easy to view things where, you know, I would miss deadlines or you know, not do chores or things like that. And it was really easy to view that as a failure on my part, like a moral failure. Especially when you consider that both your brother and your sister fell into the neurotypical categories. So you're the oldest. And I know that your parents, you know, raising their kids in the 80s, the kind of resources that were available for kids that didn't fall in the neurotypical category well yeah not great especially where you were living in Corvallis Oregon smaller town more conservative less likely to make accommodations for people who don't fall within the normal and there's this attitude of just try harder or just learn from examples that other people are setting for you Why can't you just do the thing that I'm asking? And one thing also that I know is from living with you pretty much for the last 10 years, asking you to be normal, what the hell? (laughs) I mean, I can't. You literally can't. It's like asking someone who's deaf to be able to hear just because you think they ought to. Without accommodations, function like a typical member of society. You can't. That doesn't work. We have had to create systems that do work for you and language and learn things about how do we communicate how you're feeling. This isn't just you. I mean, I have had anxiety disorder plus complex PTSD plus a lot of different things. (laughs) Who knows what? at this point, but mostly those things for years, decades. I remember having panic attacks and meltdowns when I was six years old over things that were a break in my routine. It's not like I can just not feel anxious. And it's not like you can just not have your ADHD symptoms. But I think for your parents to give them a little bit of grace. There was a time where ADHD was just kind of a diagnosis that was thrown at boys who were a little off the wall. And then there was a backlash of people saying, well, your kid is just a kid. I apologize to everyone who believes that. You did not grow out of it. So you're 37 now. If you were going to grow out of this, you'd have done it by now. Yeah. It's a challenge. And I have found that one, realizing that it is the result of just my brain chemistry 
and two, recognizing that I am not the only person that deals with this has really helped me to give myself a little bit more understanding and grace. And I found also that knowing that you are dealing with anxiety and all of your own complex PTSD problems has made it easier for me to deal with those times when you're having a panic attack because then I stop thinking about how grumpy you seem or how easily annoyed you're getting and more thinking about how can I help. Along the lines of the grace, you've shown me a lot of grace. You have shown me that I need to provide myself with some a lot more than I've given myself historically. And you treat what some people consider to be a mood disorder like a medical disorder where like, let's say I cut my foot. Well, you treat the cut and try to heal it. And you understand at that point, no, they don't want to go walking on it. So you see my anxiety flare up and you're like, well, we're not going to fix this by telling her to be normal or not to worry. We're going to treat this by following the things that actually help. If I look at you and say, I realize that the oven is off. Will you please check it anyway? And you're like, I know the oven is off. I will check it anyway and report back. Much better than just telling me, no, the oven's off. A large part of it is you've given me a lot of grace in how I handle my own mental illnesses. And I like being able to return the favor. I feel like if we're both showing one another that grace, we're helping one another cope. We're able to work together on this because we're a partnership. There's nothing to be gained by making the other person feel bad because there is a very real thing where my own brain makes me feel worse about any failings that I'm experiencing than you could possibly. And so when you counteract that, when you provide the counter messaging that I need to hear, that really helps me. And I know that when you're getting incredibly anxious, your brain is feeding you all of these baleful messages about the darkest possible reading of everything. It's making you feel bad for feeling bad. And I know that there is no good to come from adding to that. And so all I can do is provide a counter message, one of love and patience, the same one that you show to me. In that way, we're able to move forward. It's not that we're perfect or anything like that, or that we're quote cured. It's just that we've got a symbiotic relationship that makes both of us better. I think that we've reached a good stopping place. And I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. This is one of the things I most look forward to in our week. I just like sitting down and talking with you. It's mutual. And having a set thing that we talk about, it helps. It's a fun little ritual. And to our audience, I hope you've enjoyed sharing it with us. By our reckoning, we may have four maybe one less, maybe one more episodes left of The Name of the Wind. And then we're going to take 
probably a break for a little bit, but then a couple of episodes to kind of be a palate cleanser. And I think we decided that we're going to talk about Lovecraft Country, probably at a quicker pace than what we've got now, maybe three or four episodes, something that's a little easier for me to edit and whatnot. But I also want to get my bank of episodes built back up. So we might go like once every two weeks on that just to kind of have a breather. But we'll get back to The Wise Man's Fear shortly thereafter. Yeah. And, you know, if you have any suggestions or things that you'd like us to talk about, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. We'd love to chat. Let us know. Yeah, our alternate for what book to read during that little hiatus almost thing was The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. So if that strikes your fancy more than Lovecraft Country, you've got a couple of weeks left before we just kind of dive into it. Let's also be real. We are acutely aware that even though Wise Man's Fear is going to be its own fairly large undertaking, there is a good chance that Doors of Stone will not be done by the time we finish. So if we don't tackle Starless Sea in between the books, We'll tackle it after we get done with Wise Man's Fear. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. But we're open to options. So with that, thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 82 through 83 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of Grace Notes. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring together. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Where right now there is, I think, two episodes of our Backcountry bonus pod... I think the second one is much better. And then two episodes of our Solstice pod as well. I think the second one is much better available. And the opportunity to prod me to do more artistic work. You don't need that much prodding typically in my experience. Okay, prodding to be more focused on my artistic works. I do enjoy it when you're artistic. Thank you. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses to one more day above the roses. Ding! Did I just spit across the whole thing? A little bit. Sorry, I didn't mean to spit all over the room. Uh, water under the bridge, so to speak. Or into the air. <laughs> <laughs>